This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. With the PGA Tour off this weekend, keep tabs on some of the only golf available, that's the Walker Cup, being held at Los Angeles Country Club out in California. For more information, visit usga.org. Well, welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock, and it is that special time of year, every two years, where Golf Magazine rolls out its list of top 100 courses in the world and top 100 courses in the United States. I love these lists for various reasons. The first being that I like to go down and kind of count off the list. Just so many top 100 courses I've had the pleasure of playing. It's only a handful, but it kind of brings back those fond memories of playing some of the most memorable courses in the world. I also like seeing which new courses have cracked the record, which young courses are really gaining ground in the golf world. Anyway, joining me today, it's Joe Passov. You probably know him as Traveling Joe. He's the travel editor at Golf. He knows just about everything you need to know or anything you'd want to know about the best golf courses in the world. I personally have never met a course that Joe doesn't know something about, which is pretty incredible. Joe, first off, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Sean. Now, I want to start with more of a general discussion on the rankings. We've got Pine Valley number one, Cypress Point number two, St. Andrews, the old course, number three. There's no surprises there, but it was a surprise when you explained to me just how these courses, uh, how they're ranked, how they're rated by various panelists, how the course raters assess these places on the scale and why it's numerical and everything about it. It was a little surprising to me because our system is a bit different. Now, you know exactly what it entails. Can you explain it to me a little bit? Yeah, uh, this is a system that I actually inherited when I came aboard in 2005, but uh, our predecessors used letter grades. And uh, with the help of some folks, I tweaked it to go back to more numerical, more easily understandable, uh, you know, kind of a situation. But how we do it very differently is that a couple of the other publications that rank courses use individual criteria for each rater or panelist to evaluate a golf course. We don't use any individual criteria and that's what makes it so different. How I look at that, because I participated in those two other uh, ways of doing things when you use individual criteria, is I say, okay, um, let's go to a restaurant or let's go to a movie, all right. We, went, we finished up in a great movie. We come out of the theater and you go, did you, did you like that film? How'd you like it? Where does it rank with you? And typically you say after a movie, yeah, it was awesome. How come? Oh, well, it was just had a great plot or the scenery and special effects were amazing. And, and you use reasons to justify it. You don't come out of the movie theater saying, well, I give cinematography a seven out of 10 and I give the acting a nine out of 10 and then I give the special effects of 9.5 out of 10, and then you add them up. That's just not the way we do things when we come out of a movie or a restaurant. And so I think Golf Magazine and how they do it for course rankings um, kind of uses the overall approach. There are certain things that every panelist should look for and typically does, but in terms of individually ranking a course with criteria, now, we put the onus on the panelists themselves being really well-traveled, been around the block many times, and, uh, and we trust their judgment. We don't dictate to them how to look at a golf course. 
we let them tell us. I like that. Now, can you tell me a little bit more, if you know much more, about these course raters, these panelists, these people that actually kind of call the shots when it comes to our rankings? You know, basically, we have anywhere from 100 uh, in a given year folks who evaluate the courses over a two-year period, um, up to 120 uh, in the past. It's also been as low as 68 many years ago. You have a plus and minus with that. On the one hand, uh, there may not be quite as many panelists as you'd prefer to see all the courses around the world, all the changes and renovations. By the same token, by keeping our numbers so much smaller than our competitors, is we have quality control. Again, we don't have to dictate to our panelists how this whole thing should work with evaluating a golf course. By having such a small number, we can maintain more of the control and then hopefully the integrity in the ratings process because these folks are so skilled and experienced at what they do. So among these, say, 100 uh, panelists, um, we have uh, folks that play the game very, very well. We have major championship winners. We have players who have played on the Ryder Cup, the Solheim Cup. We have World Golf Hall of Fame players that vote on courses, many of them with a keen interest in architecture. I should say most of them. But in addition to the really, really great players' perspective, we also have the perspective of other eyes looking at courses from different perspectives, such as administrators from the USGA the PGA of America, the RNA, who set up the golf courses for championship play. In addition, we have journalists and photographers who are very well-traveled, who are uh, experts in this particular field. And then we have some regular Joes <laughs> who aren't so regular because they have the time and the money to go around seeing all these golf courses on a pretty regular basis and a dozen of them uh, out of our 100 regular voting panelists who have played at least one version of all top 100 courses in the world. So we mix it up a little bit with handicap levels, with experience levels, with playing ability levels, and I think the balancing act is what makes our final results really special. Now, one thing I need to explain to me, because I didn't know the answer a couple of years ago, when I was asked, the question is, how does one become a course raider? Is it is there a defined process? Is there a science to it? Or uh, is it kind of luck? Uh, well, <laughs> for the other guys out there, uh, the other publications that rank courses, um, it's probably a little bit easier. Uh, now you can pay a fee if you have uh, enough experience and you want to be part of this and can pay a fee and, and have a chance at, at, getting on our, uh, at getting on their panel. For our panel, the number is so small, and we have people from 18 countries. That's how we get our credibility. How does somebody get on our panel? Um, in the case of a major championship winner, take Gary Player, for instance. Okay, this guy has seen more golf courses, competed at the highest level, played in more countries, um, and also is an architect in his own right. So the Gary players of the world are kind of a slam dunk. 
You think that if Gary Player is helped producing the final rankings, um, you've got some great credibility with the final results. So then, all right, how about if you aren't a World Golf Hall of Famer? You're just someone who has a deep appreciation um, for the great golf courses of the world. Well, a lot of people in this era um, are, are checklist kind of people. All right, we all know them. Um, more power to them. I, I was one of those when I was younger. I just want to play all the courses on the list or as many as I can. And that's fine. We call that breath, you know, in getting around from place to place to place. But, okay, do you really appreciate what you're seeing? And so when somebody asks me about how can I become a panelist or a raider for Golf Digest, I say, well, all right, what are some of your favorite courses and why? Which courses um, do you think are overrated and why? And I listen to their explanations. You know, what's the thought process behind why someplace is good, someplace maybe overrated, and what else do you do? Do you just want to check off the top 100, or do you want to look a little deeper? And if it's Donald Ross or A.W. Tillingcast, you think they're great architects, well, are you willing to pursue some of their second-tier courses to see if there's some hidden gems in there, or are you only interested in their top 100 products? I look for those folks, men and women, who are interested in those second-tier courses as well, and even the third-tier courses, to come up with a reason why this course should rank here and this other one should rank here. So when I, when I talk about it with people, how much architecture have you read? Have you read McKenzie's book? Have you read Tom Doak's books? Um, you know, we go into it that way, and the passion and the seriousness about courses and course rating evaluations, all of that is very, very important when it comes to picking who might be a worthy panelist for this exercise. That's a perfect answer. Uh, now, you have been a panelist for how long? Well, I joined the Golf Magazine panel um, when I became the rankings editor in 2005. Um, prior to that, uh, from 1987, uh, for the next, uh, I don't know, six, eight, ten years, I was a uh, Golf Digest panelist. And uh, from, from what the folks there tell me, uh, I'm still the youngest panelist in Golf Digest history. So, hey, <laughs> I got that going for me. <laughs> and then I also served a stint with Golf Week uh, for five years. So I think I gained a unique perspective on how the other publications do it, and then was able to bring that um, pluses and minuses, um, and that both systems uh, uh, definitely have them. Uh, I was able to bring that experience to Golf Magazine uh, when it came time to um, tweaking how we do the rankings. Totally. Now, your process as a panelist, as you've already explained, it's going to be different than a number of other people uh, that are included as panelists, Gary Player and everybody else. What is your process like? What are the, all the things that you consider, uh, and which do you feel is most important? Uh, I'm very curious about how you break course down. Well, that that's what's fun about this exercise and having the freedom, the latitude to kind of place your own importance on certain things. I mean, if you're so out of touch with the way the rest of the panel responds, then there's an issue, then there's a problem. 
Um, you know, for instance, I can tell you we have some uh, we have a half dozen photographers who vote on this, and you know what? It's not surprising that typically they 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 factor in beauty. Um, you know, maybe maybe a little higher uh, than some of our major championship winners would. Some of our major championship winners might be more concerned with uh, fairness and challenge because they've had to compete on those courses, not just, you know, kind of enjoy them, um, you know, in a, in a more relaxed setting. So I get that. That's what I love about the balancing act. For me, um, yeah, anybody who's played with me in the last 30 years understands there's no major championships in my past or future. So what do I look for? I want a golf course to stimulate me, okay? I want challenge, but I don't want the challenge to be so one-dimensional that you can't tell one hole from the next. And that goes for the aesthetics as well. So my number one criteria with how I evaluate a golf course is variety. What's going on from hole to hole, basically? Uh, that, that was, you know, Dr. Alistair McKenzie, the guy that, you know, co-designed Augusta National. He did Cypress Point, Royal Melbourne. Um, he said, variety is everything in golf. And, you know, my feeling, you should look at fairways. And, and any of you can do this. A anybody I've ever played golf with can actually go through this exercise and say, you know, I, I look at fairways. They should have sufficient variety in terrain, in direction, in width. Uh, and, and the same with the greens. They should offer diversity, size, contour, configuration. Um, hazards should have variation in placement and frequency. I mean, we're all nuts about Pebble Beach's 18th hole or Sawgrass's 17th hole. But what if every hole on the course was just like that? It would get boring. It would get repetitive. You wouldn't remember the golf course uh, as well. So all of these things, all of these elements from the layout of the hole, the green complex, the hazard placement, there should be variety and interest from hole to hole to hole to hole. So, you know, that, that's kind of the first thing I look for. And, um, you know, courses with no water hazards, basically, Pine Valley, um, Marion, of course, has a little creek. Shinnecock Hills has like a pond. But they manage to have such great variety from hole to hole, what you're being asked to do, um, that they ace the variety test. So I, I guess the other two areas that I concentrate on are our challenge and beauty, you know, and, and again, for a good player, I mean, a major championship quality player, you want to be challenged. You really want to be tested. I think the guys had a, had a good time at Aaron Hills this year, but a few of them probably wanted to see firmer conditions and more wind. I remember uh, Justin Rose and a couple of the guys complaining a little bit um, about Hazel team set up for the Ryder Cup last year. They just said it was too easy. And the better player you are, you want it with a strong degree of difficulty to separate the men from the boys, so to speak. So, you know, I think that's what makes golf so interesting um, is, is the challenge. Is from one hole to the next, um, make some demands on you, get you thinking, um, make you pull off something uh, that you feel good about. Um, and, and that should test mental and physical attributes. Uh, on the greens, in the width of the fairways, you know, all of that stuff. However, again, you just, 
you know, you try to avoid unfair design aspects such as blind water hazards, um, or when one hole after the next just blends into each other. Yeah, it might be tough, it might be beautiful, but how do we really remember it going forward? And um, and and so, you know, that's one of the areas I just I love Augusta National. Um, Gil Hans backed this up, you know, when I talked to him last month. And so that's the perfect golf course to test the best players in the world when they get the greens as firm and fast as they do, but also test the 10 and 15 handicap in a proper way because there's so much strategy going on, but the typical 10 and 15 handicap is not going to be facing greens that firm and fast when they're just there as members or guests of the club. So, you know, part of the challenge should be great risk reward well, you're not just carrying a lake on two shots, but rather maybe flirting with a hazard, risking something on the drive, and then, oh, I pulled that off. Now maybe I've got an easier shot in. And, you know, I think that's, that's where Augusta National and St. Andrews shine is with risk-reward aspects. And then, and then again, finally, it's aesthetics or beauty. I mean, we, we are human. I love the argument somebody comes back with, and, and it's been years with this, like, oh, well, if Pebble Beach didn't have an ocean, you know, it would be pretty ordinary. I'm like, it does have an ocean, though. <laughs> you know, you can't take that away. And we're human. Again, we, we love beautiful settings for golf, whether it's oceans or mountains or forest, um, rolling terrain as opposed to just tabletop flat terrain. So, you know, uh, that, that's kind of how I look at it from my own perspective is, you know, there are always criteria that um, everybody should typically apply. You know, how well does the course test the full range of skills, um, design rhythm, the flow and balance of a course, variety of terrain and individual holes, as I've discussed, uh, you know, course conditioning that can make a, 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 you know, change a so-so course into a very good one and vice versa. But typically what I look at, I always come back to, Sean, is the enticement factor. After you've played it, whether it was tough, easy, beautiful, homely, whatever it is, how much do you really want to jump back to the first tee and play it again? And the greatest courses, and some are tougher than others, you can't wait to get back to the first tee and try it again. No, that's that's a great answer. I. Couldn't help but listen, though, and and pick apart the various courses that you use as examples, St. Andrews and Augusta and Pebble. But you didn't say Pine Valley anywhere in there, and I, I, not that you had to, but Pine Valley is the number one course in the world. Now, can you explain to people, because Pine Valley very much just exists in photos and in in memories of photos for a lot of people, why is Pine Valley the number one course in the world? Well, for many, many years, Pine Valley assumed the top spot, even before any magazines really started ranking courses, because for those who did get to play Pine Valley, uh, it was considered the toughest test of golf in, in the U.S. and maybe the world. And there was a long time period where we equated toughness with greatness because there were so few championship courses out there um, that, you know, those that were usually hosted U.S. Opens. 
Uh, Pine Valley couldn't because of its unique setup. It's really, really difficult for spectators uh, to be aboard there and tromping through all these sandy waste areas. So they've never been a major championship host, although they have hosted the Walker Cup a couple times. So, okay, once we got away from the notion that toughness was greatness, instead toughness became one aspect of greatness. And how you then had to look at Pine Valley is by breaking it down into each individual hole. And what happens at Pine Valley and the reason I think it's the best course in the world and why it continues to be ranked number one is that the individual holes themselves are the greatest collection in terms of how memorable they are, how challenging they are, and how much they vary from one to the next of any course in golf. One of the acid tests of greatness in a golf course is when you finish playing the round, you walk in up 18, you go have your beverage, and you replay the round in your mind. Oh, yeah, I hit driver there and a three iron there. And then the next one was a nine iron to a par three. And then the next one went uphill and then to the right. When you can easily recall how all 18 holes looked and played, that means you've probably got a great golf course. And Pine Valley does that better than any golf course on earth. Let me pause for one quick second to share a message from the USGA. Combining golf and life is tricky. I personally have a hard time myself living out in New York City where it's always busy and the nearest golf course is about an hour and a half commute away. How do you fit golf and life together? Ask the USGA and they think it's pretty easy. It's called Play Nine. Nine hole golf, it's time friendly, it's unwind friendly, it's friend friendly. It's conducive to just about every aspect of your busy, busy life. Golf after work, golf before you pick up the kids. It's all a lot more possible when you play nine. You can even post your nine hole score and it counts toward your handicap every time. Yes, there's a lot to love about golf. We all need it in our lives. And when there's less time, the USGA says play nine. Learn more about options to play in your area by going to usga.org slash play nine. And now back to Joe Passoff. The rest of the top 10, it goes Pine Valley, Cypress Point, St. Andrew's Old Course, then number four is Royal County Down in Northern Ireland, number five is Augusta National, six, Shinnecock Hills, seven is National Golf Links of America out in Long Island, eight is Oakmont, nine is Pebble Beach, ten is Muirfield over in Scotland. You've got a good mix of American courses, Scotland courses, you've got a Northern Ireland course. I'm curious though, when you're filling it out and you're looking at all these courses, is it fair to think in your mind, okay, Pebble is actually better than Oakmont, which is better than Pinehurst? Or is it even fair to say, no, I really like Oakmont better than Pinehurst, but not as much as Pebble? Or how do you go about pitting these various courses against each other to have your own personal ranking? That is a brutal part of this process. I mean, there is so much hair splitting that goes on in the minds of every panelist, you know, including me. Um, I mean, I, listen, I, with my game and, and, you know, what I like, I'm very partial to links courses. Uh, I just like playing in firm, fast conditions with the breeze going and having to kind of create some shots and bump and pitch around the greens. 
um, I'm just not quite as skilled, you know, through the bag as somebody that can handle, you know, one of the modern championship courses or some of the force carries that the older courses call for. Uh, so there is some personal preference that definitely goes on. Um, Oakmont, for instance, uh, I've played it a few times. I've loved it, and I've been horrible. <laughs> I mean, I, I've just I've struggled every single time I've played there. But what's compelling about Oakmont to me is you don't think it's going to beat you up, you know, because there aren't that many force carries. You think, oh, I'm a pretty good putter. I, I can handle fast greens. And then, boom, you hit what you thought was a pretty good eight-iron approach, and it goes eh, trickling down and down and down, and now it's gone. And now you have some kind of tough chip shot or, you know, putting up or using your hybrid. Pinehurst number two is similar. They look so much easier than they play. You know, you can hardly lose a ball at either one of them. So how do I look at those courses and say, well, how does it compare with a great Scottish links? when you're looking out at the sea and you have these sand hills, you know, and all that. That's the hard part, Sean. Um, we make it slightly easier on our panelists because we let them vote courses into groups or blocks. So we use a one through three category that gets the most points. So technically you don't have to choose between say Pine Valley and Cypress and St. Andrews. If you, those are your top three in whatever order, you just lump them in one through three. And then we have a four through 10 category. And so the toughest decision is, wow, what was really number 10 in your mind versus number 11? But that's why you sit down with a legal pad and start thinking about this stuff and, and what's important to you and, and how enticing it is, that feeling when you drive up to the course, you know, in the club, how much you relish being asked what you're going to do. And, um, and that's how you make the hard decision. You know, if, if somebody thinks that Pinehurst or Oakmont has a lot of holes that look or play similar, then just as many other people come back and say, yeah, but the challenge is so pure. It's so pristine. Go out and do it. And that's the fun they have of trying to figure out how to create those shots and do it. So a little bit of different strokes for different folks, but the hair splitting is really, really tough. Now, how many of the top 100 have you played, Joe? Oh, boy, I used to add this up. Um, oh, you don't know the <laughs> number? I figured you would. <laughs> I've been busy. I'm sorry. I think I think it's um, in the world top 100, it's top, uh, maybe maybe 83 or 85. Okay. Um, I honestly uh, forgot to add this up this time. And in the U.S., there's a lot of cool courses that have come on board in recent years, um, especially with some fabulous restorations. Um, and, and some of them I've been able to see, and some of them I haven't had a chance to get to yet. So my number's a little bit smaller in the U.S., but one thing I can be proud of is that uh, I'm looking at the world list right now, and I have played – the top 28 in the world. Okay, so you're cutting it off at 28 because number 29 is a new course. It is the highest-ranked new course on the ranking. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong in the pronunciation, but it looks like Tara Iti or Tara Iti? Yeah, I'll, I'll go with Tara Iti. <laughs> Tara Iti. Because I'm not, sure, I'm not sure anybody's corrected me. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, a course uh, Tom Doak designed. 
It's in New Zealand. If you've been to it, um, you're probably probably pretty lucky. I would take it. I didn't even know this course existed until I, I checked the rankings myself. It's young. Uh, I believe it was opened in 2015. So that's the newest one on the list. What what can you tell me about it? Well, Tom Doak, the architect, has had some fabulous sites uh, over his career, and he has done some amazing things with them. Um, he's He has a number of our top 100 courses, both in the U.S. and the world. And when Tara Eady came along, um, it was uh, actually a – a, uh, a man in Los Angeles named Rick Kane, um, who, like Julian Robertson, uh, a Wall Street fellow who came before him with Kari Cliffs and then with Cape Kidnappers, Rick Kane was a serious golf enthusiast and found a piece of property in New Zealand and found that Tom Doak was the architect to develop it. So when Doak, during construction, told someone if this course doesn't make the top 50, then I haven't done my job because the setting is so great. Well, Doak was, was right. He had a great crystal ball going on because he knows from really great sites. And he also knows from great designs, including his own. And this one, our reviewers have just been effusive in their praise. And you always want to be careful, you know, maybe not, not to go wild right off the bat just because it's new and we've had several courses over the years where you know people get all excited and then eventually that wild enthusiasm dies down a little bit and the course sort of finds its proper spot Eady, it remains to be seen but the way people responded to this golf course the place it's so high it's our second highest debuting course ever after Sandhills, which was the Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw course in Nebraska. And, you know, these are folks who are ranking it a lot higher than some of the classic courses on earth. They had to have good reason. And it's because it was sandy soil covered with pine trees right next to the ocean. And Doak and his team were able to take away most of the pine trees and create virtually a pure Southern Hemisphere Lynx experience. So you have all of those cool British style Lynx things going on from the ball scooting along the ground and bunkers that kind of draw them in, bunkers that you need to risk shots to say, well, you know, should I take it on or should I lay back a little bit? You have those shot making challenges around the greens where, hey, I can't get a sand wedge underneath this one. Um, how do I bump it into just the proper spot with enough spin and then take off the steam and get it close to the hole? It's just what good thinking players love to do and love to play. And when you give them those conditions in a New Zealand and a setting on the ocean, um, chances were good that it was going to do very, very well. And indeed, it has done spectacularly well. Yeah, anytime you, you crack the rankings at number 29, that is... That's quite the jump. I mean, it's ranked higher than Riviera. It's ranked higher than Brookline. It's ranked higher than Bethpage, than uh, you know, all kinds of the Royal True and a bunch of, of open courses. So anytime you crack the rankings, regardless of if there's some volatility to it, uh, that it'll find its own place within the ranking in the years to come, that's incredible. So you know, if anyone's feeling well-endowed and want to spend some money, uh, head on down to New Zealand and, and try to take Don Terra. 
uh, Terry Ed. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, other than that, there are four other new courses uh, that that cracked the rankings. Uh, you've got Cabot Cliffs. Um, that's up in Canada. That's ranked 50th in the world. You've got Cape uh, Wickham. Wickham. Uh, that's an Australian course. You've got, uh, I believe it's called just the Yas Links uh, in Abu Dhabi. And then you've got Presswick that's ranked 100th. Uh, finally, a course that is approaching uh, its 200th birthday in not too long. It's, it's a very old and traditional course, but it just finally has cracked the rankings. What, how does a course that is so old finally get, uh, I guess, appreciated to this level? Well, Sean, that's a great question, and and I think it goes to the ever-evolving nature of preferences in design, in trends, and for many years, I mean, this is why there's no pure one way to rank courses, you know, that, that you can be as objective as you want to be, but personal preference still enters into it, and the coolest thing about Presswick is that for many, many years, and I'm talking about 50 years worth of rankings, is it was just considered too old-fashioned, too weird, too quirky. I mean, you, you stand on the first hole, and it's pretty flat, and there is a train coming at you that hugs the right side of the fairway so close that, like, your knees are shaking. You know, your hands are shaking. Like, i got to somehow put this ball in play, and there's a train coming at me. Well, I can't very well bail out too far left because it looks like the surface of the moon over to the left. There's all these mounds there. Okay, and survive the first hole, and then you have these blind bunkers on these archaic designs. Well, in the 1860s and the 1880s and the 1920s, that was all considered very sporty. We all played match play, so you didn't really need to think about fairness. But once stroke play took over, and the notion of fairness became more important, Presswick was just looked as like a historical oddity, like it belonged in a museum somewhere. So over the last 10, maybe 15 years, I think more panelists are thinking more thoughts about fun and interest and just how compelling the golf experience is with the golf course leading the way. And so Presswick's been slowly climbing in the rankings from somewhere in the 150s 10 years ago, and it came reasonably close last time. And I just think you have some purists on our panel, some traditionalists, some folks that value fun more than they do what's the stiffest test that I can possibly play. And that's where Presswick finds a place at number 100. And I just love that because we're filled with variety. We're filled with really hard, great championship courses that could host a U.S. Open or a PGA tomorrow. But then there's a place like Presswick and say it's worthy as well. So kudos to Presswick. Yeah, no doubt. Now, when you look at the rest of the ranking, top 100, is there anything else that really surprised you about this list? You know, any course that really jumped up higher than you expected or, or course that even fell further than you expected down the ranking. Is there anything that really surprised you about it? Well, I was very curious for the past three years, not just two years, but three years, uh, about Cabot Cliff's placement, and then what would happen to its older sibling, Cabot Lynx. Because 
what typically happens, um, and it's like that with whatever we review, whether we're reviewing movies or restaurants or other human beings, <laughs> you know, you think one is really, really special, and then another one comes along right next to it, and you say, oh, my gosh, maybe that wasn't quite as special as I thought because this new one is just amazing. So that's what I was very curious to see, what would happen with Cabot Cliffs and Cabot Lengths. Cabot Lengths was really well received, and people enjoyed it so much, the older of the two courses. But Cabot Cliffs was sitting there being built up on the cliffs, higher up, more drama, more spectacular. Um, Better-known architects, Coor and Crenshaw did the new one. Rod Whitman, a very capable, able architect who's worked with many of the best, did Cabot Lengths. Um, and so that's kind of one of those little interesting things. Cabot Cliffs debuted very, very high at number 50. Um, extremely worthy. Again, folks have fallen in love with it. What's not to love? And Cabot Lengths fell, but it did not fall out of the top 100. Um, it, it maintained a place there. And now I'm thinking two years from now, um, because it did fall 21 spots, Okay, maybe all the wild enthusiasm dies down a little bit about Cabot Cliffs, and then maybe the two courses get a little too closer to each other again. So that's one of the curiosity factors, uh, you know, for me. And, um, you know, a handful of others. I think, you know, all credit, politics aside, to the Ailsa course at Trump Turnberry, many times uh, an open champion venue. Um, they did a very controversial redesign on the Ailsa, uh, changed uh, par four ninth, one of the greatest holes in the world, uh, to a par five, uh, moved holes closer to the uh, to the sea. I mean, a lot of controversy when you make major changes to a course that's already in the top 25. Well, they were validated. So, uh, you know, a handful of other uh, fun surprises. It was good to finally see a course from the Middle East, uh, Yaslings Abu Dhabi, uh, Kyle Phillips, very capable architect that created the entire plot of ground for that golf course. Um, there was nothing, literally nothing there. And in doing the dredging and the fill and creating this field of golf, um, it, it's kind of neat to see uh, one of the courses in that part of the world break through into our top 100. So, um, yeah, uh, lots of other stories, uh, and, and, uh, but these are some of my favorites. Yeah, I like that. Now, uh, you also wrote, you put together the entire package that went in Golf Magazine and a lot of the stuff that's going to be online at golf.com. You also put together a thing with your five to watch. These are courses that are not in the top 100. They didn't crack the actual top 100 in the world list, but you think that they will. You think it's only a matter of time. It's an inevitability. The courses were Mammoth Dunes at Sand Valley. That's a very, very young course uh, that's kind of still catching its footing, I, I guess. Um, that's back from in Wisconsin in the middle of the state. You you put down Hogshead, which is in Ireland, Quail Hollow in Charlotte, which is a course that at least should be on the back of people's minds still since Justin Thomas just won his PGA there. You also put down the Preserve, which is in California, and then Royal Aberdeen in Scotland. Now, you kind of picked these five as people or <laughs> as uh, as courses you think will crack the list eventually. Why do, why do these five stand out or... Uh, any of them in particular that, that really caught your eye? You notice I was clever enough to word it as five to watch as opposed to 
yes, these five will definitely enter the rankings. Uh, we had that happen a couple of years ago um, with a course that was number one and 101, and it just seemed like it would be natural that it would jump into the top 100 the next time, and, and it did not. It actually, that was the highest that course ever got, and it moved down. So these are just kind of five courses that I noticed in, in, in terms of how they were ranked or where they might be ranked in the future if they're brand new, um, or courses that are trending that may be moved up 75 spots or 100 spots, but didn't, you know, crack the top 100. So for the David Kidd course at Sand Valley, uh, which is called Mammoth Dunes, Sand Valley had a course that opened this year and that was designed by Core Crenshaw, and it did very, very well. It was our highest debuting course in the United States at number 52. So, all right, um, Mike Kaiser, part of the development team, you know, and he did Band and Dunes, so you know he wants to add a second course and maybe a third course and maybe a fourth course. So he chose David Kidd, uh, his architect of the original Band and Dunes course, and Kidd is doing Mammoth Dunes. Well, Mammoth Dunes is going to be completely different than the original Sand Valley course. Again, it's going to be really fun. By the October end of October, 13 holes will have opened there. Um, and people are, want to go see it because they want to compare the two. That's what's fun about having a couple of great courses on one property. Gigantic greens, massively wide fairways, huge dunes with a big 80-foot ridge on the property. Mammoth Dunes probably stands out as I wonder how folks will receive that and whether it will be ranked ahead of the original Sand Valley or behind it or something completely different. Quail Hollow, which was ranked, uh, is finished number 101 in the U.S. in our rankings this year, and they were done before the PGA. Um, fantastic test of golf. Uh, no question about it. You had great leaders and, and a great champion at the top. But you also had some folks kind of complaining a little bit, uh, I'm talking about the pros, about how relentlessly difficult it was in spots with yet another redesign and a really, really rough finish that the pros have known for years. That's one of those courses, it just keeps changing, it keeps evolving with design tweaks. And, you know, it's extremely well regarded. Will it be just enough to push it into the top 100, we shall see. Well, um, Aberdeen uh, has hosted uh, the Aber Aberdeen Asset Management Scottish Open. And again, I think players really had fun with uh, the uh, true links. Now, it's never played as long as some people like in modern times. Uh, there's, there's some blind shots there. It's narrow in spots. But for folks who love links golf, Royal Aberdeen isn't close close call, and it did finish very close this time at 106 in the world. And um, in, in the case of the preserve, uh, part of the Santa Lucia preserve uh, in the hills above Carmel, um, gosh, it's tough to break through when you've got neighbors like Cypress Point, Pebble Beach, Spyglass Hill, Monterey Peninsula Country Club. But they just did a conditioning program where the ball now goes and runs, and you have more roll in the fairway, more options around the greens, tweaks and bunkers. It's an inland golf course, but a stunning piece of property, absolutely gorgeous. And so uh, that's a course that jumped many, many, many spots. 
I don't know if next time it will uh, make sufficient progress to jump into the U.S. top 100, but it was one worth noting that they made some changes and our panelists noticed them. Have I forgotten one? Yeah, Hogshead. Oh, man. All right. This is a really cool story because it's in southwest Ireland. Again, a hotbed of golf by Waterville and, of course, Valley Bunyan's near there. And uh, and so there was an existing course here called Skellig Bay. We even featured it in Golf Magazine when it opened in 2006. Well, it never drained very well, and it wasn't a very popular golf course. So, again, an American developer uh, decided he was going to buy this piece of property, brought in Robert Trent Jones, Jr., and the Robert Trent Jones the second firm, and said, let's do something special with this. It's such an amazing location, sitting on the Finglass River and then holes that overlook the Atlantic Ocean. We got to do something better than what was here. So they used some of the same corridors as the old course, but they sand capped it, threw down sand and the whole thing um, to make it drain and play like a real Lynx course. And so you have these holes on the front nine that hopscotch the river and there's salmon running through the river and all very scenic and interesting. And then the back nine holes and really holes eight through 16 overlook the ocean. And Jones had some fun with the design. He has two greens on one hole that serve the same hole. He has a double green on another hole. Um, he has some architectural homage going on. Hey, Tillinghast would have done this. Mackenzie would have done this with a false front. Uh, Pine Valley uh, has the two greens on a couple holes. So not only are you going to get this amazing scenery and great conditions, but you're going to get this nod to architectural history too. So Hogshead could be a very, very cool addition. Yeah, all five of them eventually uh, could be great additions to the top 100, but they have to earn it, that's for sure. Now, Joe, before I let you go, what's the best course that you played this year that you had not played before this year? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, man, I just didn't, uh, didn't play as much golf as I had hoped this year. Um, I'll tell you. I've got a, um, I, 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 I'll, I'll say this, Cherry Hills in Denver was on my list for a long time because I'm such a golf history nut. And we know what's happened at Cherry Hills, most specifically Arnold Palmer drove the first green and won the U.S. Open, flung the visor in 1960, you know, just one of the greatest Arnie charges ever. And um, even though Denver's not too far away from where I live, I hadn't had a chance to play there. I uh, had an incredible trip uh, for a couple of days. Uh, Colorado Golf Club, a core Crenshaw course that deserves a lot more ink and, and has also come close to our top 100. Castle Pines has had some tweaks. They played the international there for many years. Jack Nicholas did excellent work there. But Cherry Hills was really cool just teeing off on that first hole and they gave me Arnold Palmer's locker there to keep my stuff in. So uh, I, I, I really cherish the experience at, at Cherry Hills to finally walk in those famous footsteps where Nicholas nearly won, Hogan nearly won, and Arnold Palmer did win. I like that. Now, what's next on the list, though? You said that Cherry Hills was on the list for a long time. Last question I want to ask you today is what is next on your list? 
Well, uh, as far as what I want to play, I still I still have a couple of high-ranking favorites that uh, I, I haven't had a chance to yet. Um, one is uh, Prairie Dunes in Kansas, which always gets ranked extremely high. Um, that's uh, the highest course in the U.S. that I have yet to play. Uh, it sits at number 30 in the world, and um, that's just one of those interesting spots uh, that's held a couple of really important tournaments, and I just haven't had a chance to do it. The running joke among courses I've never played is, is Shadow Creek. Um, in Las Vegas, nearly every one of my colleagues and even my family members have played Shadow Creek. I've had four or five uh, invitations to play and one tee time that was actually taken away. And I get a call from the general manager the day before I was to come up and said, your bad luck continues. We've had to clear the course for tomorrow. I'm like, okay, I don't even get to find out who you're clearing the course for. You know, is it a president? Is it a king? <laughs> Was it Tiger? I have no idea. You know, I can't imagine them doing that at Cypress Point or Augusta National saying, sorry, folks. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can't play tomorrow. But, um, you know, frankly, I-, I love the new courses and what's influencing and trending in architecture. And I hope in my travels I get a chance to get down to New Zealand to see Tara Eady because of, um, because of my fellow panelists. Uh, admire it so much, then I got to see what's going on there. Best of luck on that, Joe. Thank you for making courses and travel just make a lot more sense to me and to the listener and everyone else in the golf world. As for the listener, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the golf.com podcast. Do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast because every subscriber helps. Early next week, we're going to have a good story on the podcast. You'll have to tune in then. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Zock.